Yeah, so I'm grateful to Sona for um, suggesting this poem for the weekend. And uh, it was also in my mind last week when I was leading a retreat at Taraloka uh, on metta and insight. And we use this poem a bit. And we use the whole metaphor of turning towards turning, turning. Yeah, so this theme of turning is, um, is a very helpful metaphor. It describes the whole process of awareness. And the poem describes the effect that a level of awareness can uh, bring to our lives. The effect it can have on us as individuals and then on us as a Sangha, and also on the, wo- uh, uh, on the world at large. It describes a momentum that we can create between us. So this morning I'm mostly um, going to be looking at it from the point of view of the individual, and tomorrow Sona's going to take it further, and we're going to look at it more in terms of the collective, in terms of us as a Sangha. So there's these few lines in the poem where where, um, the writer, she says, um, of how we saved the world from disaster, the answer is both simple and complex. We turned. So it's simple. Like all good teachings, it's simple because it's easy to describe. And it's complex because it's difficult to do. We have to work against our conditioning and our views about ourselves and about others. We have to work against habits, work against the general culture around us. That kind of general uh, conditioning and habitual um, uh, culture of resisting what's really going on. And we've been taught, like the poem says, we've been taught to do that, to turn away, to resist what's actually happening. And we've been taught it in actions that are louder than words. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Actions that are louder than words. It's not that anybody says to us, don't look at that. Don't turn towards your experience. It's not that anyone's saying that. But there's ways that our parents have been, our friends are, uh, our teachers are, or whatever, that tells us, don't look, don't go there. So often the way that we, um, uh, we relate to our experience uh, is through the mental states of craving and aversion. So we have an experience that we like or which uh, colludes with our view of ourselves, and we grasp after it. Yeah? Um, we invest in it. We appropriate it. We have an experience and then we appropriate it. This is how we build our self-image. Or we have an experience that we don't like, that doesn't really work uh, in relationship to our self-view. And then we block it, we go against it, we resist it. We have an aversion towards it. When I was um, just starting uh, to practice uh, meditation and Buddhism, I remember coming away from a talk in the, in the, in the centre in Glasgow, walking back home. And I lay on my bed and thought, it's all too much. It's all too much. And I thought, well, what is too much? And then I had this (coughs) awful realization. I'm too much. And I thought, okay, so what does that mean? And I discovered that I had two ugly sisters. 
two ugly sisters uh, well established within me. So if I did something well, like um, I served tea well in the Buddhist center, I had one particular sister, kind of personality. She was a bit like sort of Dolly Parton. Okay, if anyone knows that. And she would go, da-da, I've served the tea really well, sort of thing. Okay? And then if I didn't do something very well, like I forgot that somebody had asked me that asked for coffee and I'd served them tea, I had something, was uh, an ugly sister, it was a little bit like um, an infant school headmistress and she wore tweeds, which was a bit different from Dolly Parton. And uh, she said, well, you didn't do that very well. That wasn't very good. Call yourself a Buddhist. You say you've got awareness. Can't even remember coffee, tea, whatever. So she'd be on me the whole time. In fact, they were both on me the whole time. So who was Cinderella? Who was Cinderella? So Cinderella is she who could have an experience if only the ugly sisters didn't get hold of it. Yeah? So I began to um, I began to keep the ugly sisters at bay. So I do something well, and Dolly Parton would arrive, and I go, "Hang on a minute. See me. I've got something to do here." And I would just let the experience of having done something well arise in me, and I would experience bliss, happiness, satisfaction, joy. And then I would do something not so well, and uh, that school headmistress would arrive, and I'd go, hang on a minute, I've got something to do here. And uh, I just stayed with my experience, I felt sadness, and then I felt satisfaction, and then I understood what I was experiencing, and then I felt bliss. Cinderella began to fill out a bit and come out of the basement a bit. So my uh, two ugly sisters are, um, well, they're based on a whole series of preconceived ideas and views I have about myself. And they carry a lot of authority. Uh, You know, you have a thought, well, that Dolly Parton has a thought, and you believe her. Yeah? You invest a lot in the words or the thoughts that come out of these, these sisters. And all of us have those kind of polarizations manifesting within us. That's um, grabbing hold of our experience and doing whatever they like with it, rather than just letting us have the experience. In this way, um, we hardly ever know what our actual experience is. We hardly ever experience it. The ugly sisters are in there really fast. So in that respect, we just stay in a state of uh, ignorance. The ugly sisters are kind of a way of um, keeping our experience at bay. I don't know why we do that, because often our experience could be very pleasurable. But something else gets hold of it. yeah, And we won't just let it in. What does it feel like just to let your experience in, just in a bit deeper? So ignorance is that habit of ignoring. She's the stepmother behind everything, in a way. 
So this resistance or appropriating experience uh, means that we perpetuate our experience of suffering. It remains unintegrated, unresolved, unexperienced. And the unconscious states of mind that are functioning around those, uh, those experiences remain unconscious. Often the ugly sisters are just distracting us from very, very simple views like, I'm unlovable, basically. And we're looking continually at our experience to prove that that isn't true, or prove that it is true. And um, because we're always looking for affirmation or something from the outside, we never know for ourselves whether it's true or not. We don't dare go there. Go there. As Banti says, we end up seeing the world as we are, not as it is. And then as the poem says, Yet on one of those days, someone did turn. They turned to face the pain, turned to face the stranger, to look at the smouldering world, turned to face himself, herself. <coughs> so how do we turn? How do we stop functioning from the mental states of the ugly sisters? Craving and aversion. Well, first of all, we need to... Um, meet those personalities in ourselves, meet those thoughts, meet those ugly sisters. Just recognising how we relate to our experience, just take that on. There's experience, and then there's how we're relating to it. Just take that on as a process, and just recognising what is it you're doing right now. How does the appropriating, <coughs> greedy mind show up in you? How does the critical, dismissive, aversive mind show up in you? What does it take for you to do that triggers those, those thoughts? And just notice how we draw authority from those thoughts. Where do you draw authority from? Somebody might say to you, oh, do you believe the Buddha gained enlightenment? You say, oh no, I don't believe in that. And then someone says, what kind, of, what kind of thing do you think, what do, kind of thing do you believe in? And you think, oh, I believe that if I serve everybody the right drink, I'm lovable and I'm a fantastic person. Yeah? What, what, what are we drawing authority from in our lives? What happens when you just sit still, quiet, and don't let the polarization, don't, take the ugly, don't let the ugly sisters get hold of you? When I was um, going through quite a difficult time when I was living in Glasgow, I had to work in meditation quite strongly with um, the third precept of stillness, simplicity, and contentment. And in my mind, there would be thoughts arising like, oh, if I do this, that'll happen. And I'd think, just be still. And then I'd think oh, if I have this conversation, we'll get that sorted out and that, and then that will happen. I think, just be contented. Just come back to experience. And after I've been doing this for a few weeks, um, somebody in the Buddhist center said to me, your body language has completely changed. What are you doing? 
And I said, I'm practicing stillness, simplicity, and contentment. You can change your mind, change your mind by doing these things. So what does it mean to function from non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion? These three great uh, mental states, positive states of mind. What does it mean to just set, step back, sit back from the ugly sisters and not let them take hold of our experience? So if we're practicing non-greed, not leaning into something that we find pleasant, what does that mean? Well, it means we're not greedy for particular experiences or particular states of mind. So these, this greediness often takes place um, through a whole load of fantasies, expectations, preoccupations, preconceived ideas about an event, a retreat, a person, a relationship, a job. So we experience something as being pleasurable or something that colludes with our, our idea about what our life want, needs to be and then we latch onto it, we cling to it, we dwell on it. So we do need to have pleasure in our lives, that's important. Um, Banti would say pleasure is very, very important to our life as a human being as well as the spiritual life. So what does it mean to experience pleasure without appropriating it? Can you tell the difference in yourself? Can you experience pleasure simply for its own sake, without it serving um, a view that you have about yourself? So just notice the craving. Notice the ugly sister arising and then sidestep. Don't let her get hold of you. Then what we have is simply experience. Pleasurable, life-affirming, blissful. The experience will be enough in itself. Satisfying enough, rewarding enough. And sometimes we have pleasure in skillful mental states. So go there, just experience that. I'm in a positive state of mind. Just let that come into you. And just experience that without um, allowing it then to build up a whole life around it. And then what you've got is um, a very nourishing experience of yourself on a path of development. I used to do this um, on particular retreats, really make an effort to uh, experience those positive states of mind. And I discovered I have a bliss lion within me. And you know, have you ever, has anyone got cats? Anyone got cats here? Yeah, a few people got cats. Yeah. And you know how they, you know how they stretch. You know, they've had a big sleep, haven't they? And they stretch. They go mm mm like that. <laughs> well, I discovered that when I turn towards that which is skillful in me and experience the pleasure of it, a cat woke up and went mm mm inside <laughs> me. But, wow, I've got a, I've got a bliss lion inside me. Yes. A big ginger cat did turn up completely out of the blue one day and lived with me for four years. So you be careful what you discover. Mm-hmm. 
So um, how would non-craving um, arise, or how would it manifest in your experience? Well, in terms of thoughts, it, your, your, um, your thoughts would be less obsessive about stories. In terms of presence, that quality of being, you'd be able to be still with whatever vedana, whatever contact was arising in you. And your emotional life would become simpler. Sad, happy, but simpler. Without you retreating into a load of thoughts again. Without becoming a heady, um, a heady experience of um, excitement or obsessing about something. What about non-hatred? So non-hatred is a state of mind where um, we don't get angry at uh, difficult things. We don't get angry at uh, different kinds of suffering. Unsatisfactory situations, direct suffering like our bodies, other people that cause suffering, maybe um, deliberately or otherwise. So it's the absence of that desire to retaliate, um, inflict harm on that which is uh, creating suffering in your life. Seen from this point of view, self-sabotage is very interesting, isn't it? Uh, you know, what is that? Isn't that our desire to harm ourselves because we're not happy with what we're doing? We're not happy with something we've done. So non-hatred gives us the ability to be with unpleasant experience. Gives us the ability to turn towards um, difficult experience. So you can um, acknowledge that something's not quite right. You could acknowledge that something's been difficult or somebody's done something that's painful. And then you can just let go. Yeah? Or, or else don't obsess, obsess with it and allow it to create stories in your mind um, about yourself or the other person. I mean, obsessive thinking is very interesting, actually. Uh, it's something we do individually, and then it's something we do collectively as well. Mm, we can have thoughts, we ha you know, we can have ideas about certain people, we can have ideas about the way the Buddhist centers run or whatever, and we can get quite obsessive about that through craving or through hatred, and then we can talk about it in a way that draws other people into that. So just notice when are we um, allowing the culture of our Sangha to deteriorate into that kind of obsessive storytelling, um, uh, what's it, culture, let's put it that way. So again, in our thoughts, we'll be less obsessive about a particular story. We won't be blaming ourselves, we won't be blaming others. We'll be able to be present to the situation without escaping into distracting thoughts. And emotionally, we'll learn to become more sensitive to a much wider range of experience. We've often got quite a narrow range of emotional uh, experience. We've got our favourites, haven't we? Whatever that is. Depression, anger, joy, whatever. And... Um, 
we kind of we move up and down those particular sort of emotional um, mental states, broaden out, broaden out, develop a wider range of um, experience. I remember uh, somebody once said to me about a friend, oh, you'll like him. He uh, enjoys positive states of mind. And I thought, well, everybody enjoys positive states of mind, don't they? Like, if you have a positive state of mind, that's enjoyable, isn't it? But no, positive states of mind are an acquired taste for many of us because we've got our favourites and they're not so positive. So just noticing where... um, you're still acquiring a taste for positive states of mind. So both the two ugly sisters of craving and aversion uh, support each other's existence. There can be no hatred without craving, no craving without hatred. And they come into being through ignorance. Our reactivity is a resistance to experience. We can't turn towards it, whatever it is. We want to ignore what's going on. There's an unwillingness to really engage. So we follow the habits of craving and aversion. And then we've got non-delusion, positive state of mind, non-ignorance. So this is our ability, I mean actually it's simply our ability to learn from our experience. I sometimes want to say to people, wisdom is simply the ability to learn from your experience. First, we need to have contact with that experience. And then we need to deepen it, take it further. It's information to begin with. Okay, I don't find that pleasant. That upsets me. That's information. And then what's the next level beyond that? reflecting on it. What are the implications? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for where I'm at? What's the spiritual life got to say about this particular experience? And then take it further. Take it into meditation. Take it to a place where it will change your consciousness. Understanding will change our consciousness. Years ago, when I was living in Glasgow, I read a book um, called Marriages of Zones 3, 4, and 5 by Doris Lessing, I think, yeah? It's just a novel. And it's all about, uh, kind of, on a mythic level, it's about the nature of relationship and how people's worlds and being are uh, moderated, is that the word? By other people. And I was reading it really late at night, really, really late at night. And I couldn't put it down. I was very um, caught by it. And I thought, my consciousness is being changed by what I'm learning now. On a very deep level, my consciousness is being changed. And the next day, I was working um, in the office in uh, my community. And the guy that I used to go out with about six years previously phoned me and he said, are you all right, Rachel? Because I had a really strong dream about you last night. And I said, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. I was reading a book and my consciousness was being changed. (laughs) In in relation to relationships. So, you know, you probably picked up on that. And then, half an hour later, the guy I was going out with, Stira Jyoti, phoned me and he said, "Mm, are you all right, Rachel? I said, "Uh, 
Yes. So it's just that I had a very strong dream about you last night. I said, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. I was reading this book and my consciousness was being changed. So, okay, thank you. I said, Moksharaja just phoned earlier as well. It's okay. Um, understanding can change our mind. Yeah. You're, you will gain understanding through experience if only you would engage with it. So ignorance is our desire to ignore experience. So how does that show up? I've been exploring for myself recently, how does ignorance show up in me? And uh, it's quite tricky, isn't it, ignorance? Because you're ignoring it, so it's very hard to know where it shows up. Anyway, um, how, do we, how does it happen? Let's have a look. Uh, so we have a rough idea about what we are experiencing, but we don't let ourselves feel it. We don't really turn towards it. We give it a name. Oh, I'm feeling sad at the moment. And then you just carry on. Another way that we do it is we minimise our experience. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's just a small thing. Uh, you know, other people deal with much bigger things than that. And in that way, we keep a distance from our experience. Or we can look at it from an ultimate perspective, like, um, well, from the point of view of absolute reality, the self doesn't exist. It's just the play of phenomena. And I know people like this, actually. And, uh, um, and then you don't have contact with your actual experience. Or we generalise. We say, well, everybody experiences the same as this. Why should I make a fuss? Uh, and in that way, we keep a distance from our experience. So non-deludedness is our ability to be with our experience and actually gather the raw data. What is the information? And we need to experience that in a way that changes us. Are we, uh, are we interested enough to learn from our experience, or are we more interested in maintaining comfort? So the poem tells us, yet on one of those days, someone did turn, turn to face the pain, the stranger, the smouldering world, to face himself, herself, until whole groups of people were turning, not only to the pain and hurt, but to the beauty and gratitude and love. So that is another point, isn't it? That when we're not really turning towards our experience, there's so much skillfulness and beauty and love that we miss. And what does that mean? That means then we're always turning out there to find it somewhere else. So once we begin to engage with our experience, without the dominance of craving and aversion, without the ignoring resistance of ignorance, then we begin to realise that our experience is much, much richer than we thought. There's more colour to it. There's more hurt and pain, yes. There's more beauty, gratitude and love. There's breadth and there's depth. There's a quality of intimacy that has its own satisfaction. 
I remember one meditation retreat which had been very difficult for me and I had to do a lot of turning towards my experience which wasn't very pleasant. And um, at the end of the at the end of the retreat I was in quite a good state of mind and I wanted to put, I wanted to wear a badge that said all my own work. <laughs> and so often we're not our own work in some form or other. We don't take initiative with our experience, do we? We don't really turn towards it and then really work with it. So without those, um, without our habits um, trapping us, we begin to flourish. Something quite new begins to flourish out of that. That's what I saw for myself. This incredible sense of um, well-being, uh, engagement, happiness, bliss. Not because everything that I was experiencing was pleasant, but suddenly I knew what I was experiencing. And that allowed a quality of creativity to flourish in me. Our minds are a very creative, natural process, but they're often very boxed in by um, the habits of mind. So what happens when some of those habits are just removed slightly? Something else comes through. Turning towards our experience is also a reality orientation. Actually, we're engaging with what's going on. So it's got a quality of wisdom, honesty, truthfulness to it. It's not something that we've learnt. It's not a half-baked idea. It's actually what's going on. So it's an attitude that aligns, uh, aligns us with reality and it creates um, a whole process of integration. We're beginning to draw our experience into ourselves. This allows us to be more naturally uh, at ease with ourselves and others. It can resolve painful experience and it can give us an appreciation of the pleasant experience. So we begin to live freer of the ugly sisters and in a much, uh, with much more inner wealth and richness. I've got a nice, um, actually got a nice quote here from Bhante, which I'll just do. The lack of authentic self-confidence that one observes in many people today is often the result of some strong emotion which they don't want to experience, but which keeps trying to come to the surface. Half-conscious of it lurking somewhere underneath, one does one's best to stop it from coming into consciousness. And if one senses it coming up, one experiences the uneasy sensation we call anxiety. Like any form of fear, Anxiety is an unskillful emotion and one to be resolved. To do this, one has to acknowledge and confront the underlying emotion, whatever it may be. And here we may need one's spiritual friends uh, for help in identifying whatever it is that is threatening to emerge into consciousness. And for reassurance that one can deal with it, that in a sense there is nothing to be afraid of. Once confronted, these emotions lose their power. And some of them even turn out to be positive. But whatever they are, positive or negative, the energy invested in them 
needs to be integrated into one's conscious life and personality. So to make the great turning as individuals is to have courage. And to do this, uh, it requires us to be fearless with our experience. And when we start doing that, then we begin to have an impact on the others around us. Have you ever been with somebody who has courage, who is confident, who can be with things, be with experience? Have you ever sat in a room with somebody who can actually be with experience? It's quite a different, uh, it's a different sort of moment, I suppose. Our ability to be with our experience gives the other person an ability to be with their experience. We're not frightened of what's going to happen. They don't need to be frightened of what's going to happen. It's a very kind way of being in the world. It's not a sentimental kindness, but one that's coming from real information. So if we can really look at ourselves, eventually we're not surprised by anything. Nothing that a human being can do or might do is a surprise to us when we've been in those depths ourselves. We've seen our own heart, we've seen its manifestations. And then we become a presence in this world that allows other people their own experience. And there is lightness to that. There's a playfulness and lightness because we've got confidence and a kind of quality of freedom to be with ourselves and others. So laughter and kindness brought others into the turning circle. It's very attractive. So a sangha needs to be willing to face themselves. And that is attractive to others. How do we help each other to maintain that honesty and courage of awareness? So, in the words of the poem, so the beauty of each person might be seen and respected. How do we allow each other to stand in each other's, uh, in, in, yeah, each other's beauty? See the people's qualities, individuality. And how does a, a sangha... Um, Enable that turning towards without becoming self-obsessed. You could ask yourself, what am I serving right now? What am I serving right now? A self-view, a petty comfort that I want in my life, or am I serving something bigger than that? Others' well-being. Can we move towards other people that are different from us? Or do we want to uh, maintain a whole sort of sameness of self? You know, we want to keep in the safe. Uh, we want to be in a safe world, don't we? Where nothing impinges on our view of ourselves. So the poem says, "And so the world was saved, but only as long as you too remember to turn." So this ability to and willingness to really face ourselves and look at our experience is the seed of the bodhicitta the awakened heart. So it starts quite small, doesn't it? With just our ability to face that experience in ourself. And eventually, 
it becomes our ability to move through the world with that altruistic dimension alive. The seed of the bodhicitta in one person has quite an impact in the world. And in two people, it has more of an impact. And in three people, it has much more of an impact. So I'll just finish with a... um, a short, st- a short story. Mm. Is it a story? Uh, a recollection of a particular interview I heard on Radio 4, uh, maybe about a year ago. And it was after there'd been a big avalanche in um, Nepal, I think it was, or in the Himalayas. I don't know if people remember that. There's quite a lot of climbers from different places on this mountain where this avalanche fell. And Radio 4, so that's a British radio did um, an interview with one of the guys that came off the mountain. He managed to come down the mountain while the avalanche, just after the avalanche had happened. And it was about a ten minute uh, interview and I listened to it at half past eight in the morning. And this is the interview. This young man, I expect he was about 23, given that he was climbing, um, he said, after the avalanche, The whole air was full of snow. Nobody could see anything. You had no idea which direction was down, which direction was up. Everybody, well, you know, everyone is completely disorientated. I think we don't understand what that would feel like, that sort of thickness of fog of snow. And he said, "Um, so I thought I need to go in this direction. And I started moving in that direction very slowly because you could hardly see a foot in front of you. And eventually I came towards uh, two people and they were very, very distressed and upset. And they said, we're going to die. We're going to die on the mountain. And he said, no, we're not going to die. We're just going to keep moving. And my sense is we need to go in this direction. And then they carried on moving for a while. And they met two women climbers and a Sherpa. And, uh, and they were all very, very upset and crying. And telling, they were all telling each other, we're going to die on the mountain, we're going to die. And he looked at the Sherpa, and the Sherpa was really distressed. And um, he said to the Sherpa, do you realize that your face has got frostbitten? which probably means something awful. I think if you know what frostbite is, that means something awful. And the man said, I do know. And then the young man said, we need to go in this direction. And they carried on walking. And he said to them, it's very difficult for us to see where we're going. If you lose contact with the person ahead of you, just shout and we'll all stop. Do not lose contact with the person ahead of you. And they carried on. And he said, then we came to a red pole in the snow. And this is the first marker of the path. And he knew then from then on, he's (coughs) going to see red poles in the snow. And he's following that. And eventually, um, the fog of snow is lifting. And he's getting lower and lower down. And he said, And when I turned round, there was more than a hundred people following me. Thank you.